in a message by R.C. Sproul. He shared an interaction he had with an unbeliever in which he asked a very crucial question that I believe is significant for us as we consider the gospel and proclaiming the gospel to others and even thinking about the gospel and meditating on it ourselves. But he asked the person very simply, what do you do with your guilt? Forgiveness is said to be a virtue as the emphasis on the centrality of the self has continued to flourish in our day, often forgiveness is discussed from the perspective of our need to forgive ourselves. It is said that in order to be free to experience freedom and to feel better about yourself, you have to forgive yourself for the wrong things that you may have done in your past. WebMD suggests the following strategy. Six steps. Number one, think back. Think back to a time when you felt safe and cared for by someone. Think about all your positive qualities. Number two, remember the event. Think about the facts of the specific event, the negative event in which there was some kind of fault. Number three, don't avoid guilt. They say that feelings of guilt are natural, but you should avoid feeling shame. Shame suggests that you are a bad person at your core, which, of course, we're not. We're not bad people deep down inside, right? Number four, take responsibility. You can't forgive yourself unless you own up to what you did to yourself and the other person you've wronged because it can't simply be about the wrong that you did to someone else. You also have to remember and to think about yourself and how you may have done something to yourself at the time. Number five, try to repair the damage. In order to truly forgive yourself, you may need to make amends. So you might need to say, I'm sorry, or do something nice to someone else. And number six, have empathy for more than yourself. This means having empathy for the other person, but you can't simply have empathy for the other person. You also have to have empathy for yourself so that even if they are okay and they forgive you, you can then forgive yourself because you're having empathy for yourself. It's so interesting to me that the best the world can offer when you do wrong to someone else is a version of addressing the situation where you make it more about you and how you feel than the wrongdoing you've done to someone else. Not all the things that they said were bad necessarily, but it's all very tainted and all of it because of the self-centered nature of it. And obviously the problem with that is that we never truly learn how to stop thinking of ourselves first. That's usually what got us into trouble to begin with. And inevitably, those feelings of guilt will resurface and we'll be back to square one trying to figure out what to do with our guilt. The reality is the world doesn't have a good answer for what to do with guilt. And for that reason, the world doesn't even have a good reason to talk about guilt and forgiveness at all. If we're all just some massive cosmic accident, then what we've done in the past, whether it's perceived by ourselves or others as wrong, really makes no difference. All of who we are and all of what we do is a complete accident and we're headed to nothingness. So why does it matter if I've offended someone else? As much as the world discusses the need for forgiveness and their version of a process for forgiveness, there isn't a good explanation for why we experience guilt to begin with. If we don't matter, then no one else matters and life is an accident and you really shouldn't care about anything. But we do still have guilt. And the Bible has an explanation for that. 
We feel guilt about things because there is an objective standard of what is right and wrong. We are not a cosmic accident. We feel guilt about things because there is one who holds us accountable for that standard. There's a semblance of that standard written in our hearts and instinctively we know that we will be held accountable for how we treat others in the eyes of the one who made us. Guilt would mean nothing. It would be completely and totally empty, devoid of any significance if there were no God. But there is a God. And God himself is the standard of what is right and anything opposed to him is the standard of what is wrong. And the fact that we do things that are opposed to him makes guilt possible. Our relationship to him as created beings made in his image, being modeled after his person in some ways that we don't fully understand. Again, having a semblance of his law written in our hearts, even as unbelievers, this is what makes guilt almost universal among humanity. There is a universal response unless a person is suffering from some kind of mental or emotional imbalance, unless a person is so severely seared their conscience that feelings of guilt are ignored or denied. There's an almost universal response among humanity of guilt when we do wrong. It can be wrongdoing that is accepted among the society at large. It can be wrongdoing perceived by the other individuals in our circle of influence. Or it can be wrongdoing that we perceive in our own minds. Doesn't matter what the reason is or what the, the immediate standard is. In the normal course of life, when we're presented with that standard and we fail to live up to it, we experience feelings of guilt. And guilt tends to weigh heavily on some. There is, of course, a psychological and emotional effect that guilt can have. Our thoughts, our emotions being stirred and seemingly held captive by thoughts of guilt over what we have done. But we know that it can also have a physical effect discouragement, depression, a paralyzing panic that at times overwhelms us, causes us to lose motivation to do anything, causes us to lose our appetites, to experience headaches, stomach aches, all kinds of aches, pains that have no clear physical cause. Some become desperately ill as their minds are preoccupied with the weight of guilt and the pressure that it causes to the degree that it becomes necessary for some kind of medical intervention. I'll ask again, what do you do with your guilt? We're returning to our series in the Psalms this morning, in particular Psalm 32. And we don't typically think about such depressing topics as guilt when we think of the Psalms. But as I pointed out last week, the Psalms tend to take us through the whole gamut of emotions that we face as human beings. And while the Psalms are generally prayers and praises, this Psalm is slightly different in its content. This Psalm is characterized more along the lines of wisdom literature. By that I mean its aim is to teach wisdom, to instruct in the way of wisdom. Wisdom is skill for living. It is living skillfully in a world that the Lord has created and sustains under his sovereign rule. Wisdom literature assumes that as a fact and therefore seeks to instruct its listeners how to navigate this life well. Since we all struggle with guilt and our guilt is a product of the reality of who God is, it behooves us to look at the word of God to know how to deal with our guilt. And to that end, Psalm 32 teaches us that the only way to truly deal with our guilt is to bring it to the Lord in confession and to receive his forgiveness. The text will say, in fact, that there is a blessedness. There's a happiness that comes only to those who confess their guilt before the Lord and find his forgiveness. Well, I'll read Psalm 32 for us this morning and then we'll pray and consider the text in more detail. 
Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed by bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let us pray. Again, Father, we come before you with hearts grateful for your word. Your word indeed is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are three main points in the psalm for our consideration First, we see the blessedness of the forgiveness of the Lord stated in verses 1 and 2. We see a parable of the forgiveness of the Lord illustrated in verses 3 through 5. And we see the promise of the forgiveness of the Lord offered in verses 6 through 11. The blessedness of his forgiveness, a parable of forgiveness, and the promise of his forgiveness. Let's look at that first point, the blessedness of the forgiveness of the Lord stated again in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In the language of scripture, to be blessed is to be favored by the Lord. It is to have the favor of the Lord upon you. Remember the concept of wisdom literature involves a consideration of the fact that the Lord is God. That he alone is the sovereign ruler over all of what exists in the cosmos He created all, therefore rules over all. To be favored by men is helpful. To be favored, to have them think a certain way about you, to have them act favorably towards you is helpful. There are varying degrees of helpfulness based on the honor due to the one who favors you. It is one thing to be favored by a neighbor and a completely other thing to be favored by a ruler of a nation. Multiply that exponentially when you consider being favored by the sovereign ruler of all creation. That is the truth that's being held out in this text as a prized possession. To be blessed is to reach the highest of heights. It is to reach the pinnacle of human potential. It is to have life to its fullest. To be blessed in this way ought to be the desire of every person's heart. Again, not to be just favored by men. That's too small a prize. But to be favored, to be blessed in a biblical sense, to be blessed of the Lord is true treasure. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Well, this is Hebrew poetry, so we're not talking about two separate things. These are the same things. To have your transgression forgiven is to have your sin covered. 
We understand what transgression is. To transgress is to cross a line. It's to step over a boundary that's been set by another. In fact, the word here implies a willful stepping over the boundary, a rebellion of sorts. The word transgression is set in parallel to the term sin. To transgress is to sin. The word for sin offers, often refers to missing a mark. If you're shooting an arrow at a target, your arrow goes way off and completely misses the point. Either way, whether we're talking about willfully stepping over a boundary or missing a mark, the point is that you haven't reached the goal. The goal, the standard has been set and you come up short. You have transgressed, you have sinned. In the context of scripture, we understand the standard. The standard, the goal, is the glory of God. It is his word, his truth, it is his law. God has established a law, a standard, And each and every one of us steps over the boundary of that standard willfully. Each and every one of us fails to hit that target. We transgress, we sin. Paul says in Romans 3, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And it is not as if our sin is of no account. Sometimes when people talk about sin and the law of God, they speak of it flippantly as if it really doesn't mean anything and won't result in anything. Biblically, we understand that our sin creates a separation between us and God, Isaiah 26. Sin makes us his enemies, Romans 5.10. Sin moves God in judgment to pour out his wrath upon us, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. In that same text in Ephesians, Paul says that we are dead in our sins. We have broken the law of God, our transgressors of the law. Therefore, we deserve the penalty of the law and can do absolutely nothing to change that on our own. Dead people can't do anything. We are already lawbreakers. We deserve only judgment. I've used this analogy frequently of speeding because it's very simple and I think all of us can relate to it. The speed limit is 30 miles per hour out there. If you go 31 miles per hour, you're technically breaking the speed limit. You're going over it. And if you go over the speed limit, you deserve the penalty for breaking the law. You may want to plead your case to the officer I was only going one mile over and the officer may be okay with that but the reality is that you're still a lawbreaker and so if you get a ticket you can't complain because you broke the law well if we've all broken God's law then we all deserve the consequence for it period because we're lawbreakers Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death what we get paid for sin is death According to Hebrews 9.27, after death comes judgment. Physical death is followed by the final spiritual death as we face the judgment of breaking the law of God for all eternity. Jesus referred to the place of judgment as a place where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Now what can we do about this? Again, we can do nothing because we're lawbreakers. As we look back at the text of Psalm 32, it appears as though God has done something. Again, to transgress, to sin, is to break the law of God, thus to offend God, and therefore we need his forgiveness. And the text says again, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In the context, it is God who is offended by our transgression because we've broken his law. We may have harmed someone else and sinned against them by doing wrong, but ultimately our wrongdoing is an offense to God. 
Therefore, it stands to reason that we need the Lord to provide his forgiveness. The text calls it a covering. This is not covering in a sense that it's something that can be removed and, and, and shown again later. This is covering in a sense that it's completely hidden from view, never to be seen again. He explains further in the next verse, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. This is not sin that will be brought up again. When the Lord forgives, he does not remember. He will not count your sin against you ever again. Sometimes we say that we forgive, but we will not forget. And that may be wise at times, right? It might be wise to adjust your behavior or involvement in the life of someone who's proven themselves untrustworthy. That doesn't mean that we should continue to think on and bring up the specific scenario in which they prove themselves untrustworthy for the sake of shaming them, which is often what we do. But God is not like that. When God forgives, his forgiveness, his covering is absolute. The text says again, he will not count our iniquity against us. Iniquity is another term for sin or transgression. The Lord forgives our iniquity. He covers our iniquity and it is never seen again. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. And again, that's, this is poetry, right? And so we're using a comparison to teach truth. How far is the east away from the west? I mean, there's, there's no way to measure how far east is from the west. When we think about the world, the world is a circle, right? The planet is a circle until we think about going east and eventually we'll get back to the same place that we came from. But directionally, east and west are more like a horizontal line going in opposite directions, and those two lines will never meet. Those two points will never meet. East and west will always be as far away from each other as they can be. They'll never meet. And so when a text says the Lord will remove our transgression from us as far as the east is from the west, that's what it means. That he'll never count our sin and iniquity against us again. Well, how does he do that? How does God... How is he able to remove our sin so completely and so utterly? Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews says, the law is but a shadow of good things to come. Instead, the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are offered continually every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would, not, would they not have ceased to be offered since worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There was a process that God instituted in the Old Testament, a whole process of sacrificial sacrificing that God instituted uh, for the people of God in the Old Testament that was intended to point to a sacrifice that was to come. It was never intended to completely take away their sin. And in fact, there was built in a constant reminder of their need for their sin to be taken away because they had the same sacrifices year after year after year. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you've desired neither nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. 
Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How is God able to completely remove our sin, to completely take away our sin, to state clearly and definitively that he will remember our sin no more? It's because Jesus came as a sacrifice and he offered his life as the perfect sacrifice. He shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice, the one to which all other sacrifices were pointing. And he offered that sacrifice once because he only needed to offer it once. And in offering that one sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice, all who have faith in him are perfected, the text says. They're sanctified for all time. God doesn't just forget about our sin. He doesn't just overlook our sin. He has definitively dealt with our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why we call Jesus our hope in life and death. This is why we sing of our Savior who did bleed for us. This is why we have passages of Scripture that we study that remind us of the blessing of the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. When the Lord takes away your sin, it is forgiven, it is forgotten. The weight of the burden of our sin and its impending consequence is completely and totally removed. It's taken away in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, there is in theology always a discussion of the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. In the context of this psalm, we see a tension of both. We see God's sovereign act to forgive, to forget, but there's also the implied act of humanity to confess. David says again, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's a recap of what he said in verse 1. But he goes on, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What does he mean by that? There is a blessing that comes from the Lord's forgiveness and... Coupled with that, there's a blessing that comes in our confession. The reality is that our confession is what leads to the forgiveness of God. No confession, no admission of guilt, no forgiveness. In this text, the one in whose spirit is no deceit is the one who has confessed their sin before God. There's no deceit because they're not hiding their sin from him. Rather, they're confessing it. Well, what does it mean to confess? Biblically, the idea of confession means to agree with God about the nature of our sin. In the New Testament, the word says to, means to say the same thing. The idea is that we say the same thing that God says about our sin. We confess it. That's why during our service, we have a prayer of confession. We do so after having read the word of God. We do so in response to the word of God. We confess, we agree with God concerning our sin, concerning our lives, concerning the faith. The deceit mentioned in our passage comes when we try to cover sin. We try to cover it and we try to deny it. We fail to say what God has said about our sin. Instead, we lie. David said there's no blessing in that. Well, this next section, we'll clearly see our need for confession. David is going to give us an illustration by means of a parable of this truth that there is blessing in Forgiveness and confessing, confessing. Look at verses three through five. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
A parable is a story that is told in order to communicate certain truth. David gives a parable right in the middle of this psalm, and it is a parable, a story from his own life. Some have thought that perhaps in terms of chronology that this psalm, Psalm 32, fits neatly after Psalm 51 in the sense that it reflects on David's understanding of the Lord's forgiveness during what appears to be a very specific time of disobedience in his life. Often commentators speculate as to whether this took place shortly after that sin with Bathsheba, as that sin occupied his mind in Psalm 51, and perhaps this is an expression of what he learned. But regardless, we see here David providing a parable, a story of his own life to illustrate the importance of confession before the Lord. Again, there is blessing and forgiveness. There's blessing and forgiveness that comes only after confession. Look at verse 3. The four here tells us that this is an explanation. For when I kept silent, he meant when he kept silent prior to his confession, prior to his agreeing with God about his sin. One author said it this way, keeping quiet is not a mark of Old Testament piety. Old Testament piety makes a noise either in lament and prayer or in thanksgiving and praise. There's something suspicious about a person keeping quiet. It gives the impression that something is being concealed, end quote. Sometimes people are quiet because that's just a part of their personality. I can relate to that. But sometimes people are quiet because they don't want to be noticed. They don't want to disclose anything about their lives. They don't want to be seen. They want to keep their life hidden, undiscovered. They want things hidden. And it's usually things that are not right. Don't let people stay quiet around you. Ask them questions. Engage in their lives. Check in on them. Don't let your brothers and sisters sit quietly, unknown, unchecked on. Again, back to our text, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Earlier I mentioned the fact that guilt can have on the soul effect, an effect on the soul and body. Here David agrees. He says, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long when I kept silent. Now, he could have said, my heart wasted away, if he was just talking about the way he felt on the inside, but he didn't. He said, my bones wasted away. I think that's significant. He felt the weight of his guilt before the Lord physically. He was physically affected by the weight of his guilt. Now, we can't build and develop a whole theology of psychology, guilt, and anxiety, and the nature of psychosomatics phenomenon just based on this one verse, right? That's not what I'm trying to do. Something is considered psychosomatic, by the way, if it is an ailment of the mind that affects the body. That is actually a true um, term. That's a real phenomenon that is spoken of. But the reality is that we all know that anxiety, fear, and yes, guilt can have a very real effect on our bodies. The mind is a control center for the body. So if the mind is significantly affected by something, it will trickle down into the body. David here is stating that he felt as if his bones were wasting away as he groaned all day long. The weight of his guilt was weighing heavily upon him. It was clear that it was the guilt of his sin before the Lord. He acknowledged that. Look at verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He was groaning all day long because he kept silent about his sin. Because he kept silent about his sin, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon him. The feeling of guilt, the weight of it, the pressure of it was of the Lord. 
David refused to acknowledge his sin. He refused to confess his sin. And because of his relationship to the Lord, the Lord was unwilling to allow David to continue in his sin. This was not a response of anger from the Lord, viewing David as an enemy, wanting to hurt him. This was rather the disciplining hand of the Lord. We've talked about the disciplining hand of the Lord before. Hebrews chapter 12, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more respect, be subject to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time, it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's Hebrews 12, 6 through 11. The Lord desires for us to be holy. He desires for us to be righteous. Therefore, he disciplines us when we sin for our good. It is through the pain of discipline that the Lord brings about righteousness. Not just righteousness in a generic sense. This is not just the Lord desiring for us to do righteous things externally. No, he disciplines us so that we would be righteous on the inside. So the inner compulsion of our heart, of our mind, of our lives is not to sin, but rather to do what is pleasing in his sight. That discipline looks different for different people in different circumstances. Sometimes it is a difficult trial. Sometimes it's the natural consequences of our sin, whatever that may be. Again, a speeding ticket we have to pay. Because we've broken the law, a broken relationship that needs mending due to our sin can cause us trouble. Sometimes it also comes in the form of guilt, the weight of guilt, the pressure we feel, the uneasiness we feel as a result of our sin as a believer. We refer to this as conviction. And listen, if you don't feel conviction when you sin, if you don't feel the weight of your sin, if you can go about life doing whatever you please regardless of what the Lord pleases, then most likely that means you don't belong to him. That's what the writer of Hebrews said. If you go without discipline, you're illegitimate. You don't belong to him. But the reality is if you do feel the weight of your sin, if you feel that conviction, that means that the Lord is at work in you. Sometimes he does that by allowing us to feel the weight of our sin. Back to the text, David says that night and day the hand of the Lord was upon me. Day and night I groaned, my bones were wasting his way. I felt as if my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. We know what that's like, right? It was hot on Friday. I don't know about y'all, but I was hot. Maryland spring, I, I swear, Maryland spring, we get just about every season within the springtime in Maryland. I don't really understand it, but, I mean, that's just kind of how it is. We know what it's like to be hot. We know what it's like when it gets so incredibly hot that you just you can't stay outside for too long. They send out all those warnings, right, he, air quality warnings. You see all those, those red blinking warnings at the bottom of your television screen or, you know, you hear it on the radio, don't go outside if you're compromised in any way. David says, that's how it felt for me. I felt as if, my strength was being dried up by the heat of summer. Now, what turns it around? Verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He said, I felt like I was dying until I confessed to you. 
Listen to the way he describes confession. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I confess my transgressions. Those same three terms, again, sin, iniquity, transgression, all pointing to the same reality. We miss the mark. We overstep the bound. We break the law of God. Because that is true, we deserve the penalty, but God is willing to forgive. He's willing to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. But first, we must humble ourselves and acknowledge our sin before him. We must confess. This is the confession of David, the believer, concerning his sin. Listen, this is not the same thing as going to a priest, right? We're not talking about that kind of confession. The Bible is not here advocating a system of priestly confession that we see in the Roman Catholic Church, for example. Every believer is a priest of God. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. There's only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. We don't need to go to a man with a collar and a shirt who sits behind a little screen and tell him all of our dirty deeds. He cannot forgive us. Forgiveness only comes from the Lord. God is the one who forgives. Again, 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he gives us that forgiveness on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ, the righteous, died for us and that he's the propitiation for our sins. He satisfies the debt that we owe for our sins. And David is confessing as a believer here. As a believer, he's already acknowledged his need for God to provide a sacrifice for him. On a daily basis, he still sins. And in this particular case, David sinned, but he did not acknowledge that he sinned. He intentionally chose to, to cover his sin. He tried to hide his sin from the Lord. He did not acknowledge his sin. Perhaps it was a one-time thing. Perhaps it was ongoing. Regardless, he was in sin and he did not confess it. He did not agree with the Lord concerning what he was doing and that it was sin. And thus the hand of the Lord was heavy upon him. Likewise for us, there are times when we abide in sin as believers it may be one of the bigger sins, quote unquote, some kind of sexual sin. Something that would cause a scandal. Maybe we've lied about our taxes. But it may also be one of the more acceptable sins that we don't tend to talk about or acknowledge as sin. Perhaps you're the kind of person who blows up in anger when people wrong you or act foolishly. And everyone knows that you're the kind of person who, quote, doesn't take nonsense. And so you excuse your sinful anger and usually couch it in terms of what the other person has done and not on how you responded in anger. Maybe it's materialism. You lust for what you do not have and, what, and do what you must do to attain it. You work long hours. You neglect your family, your home. You step on others to climb the proverbial ladder of success. You neglect the Lord, his people, his word in favor of that supposed success. Perhaps it's pride. You have to be the center of attention. You have to dominate conversation. You make everything about you. You're probably thinking I'm talking about you right now. You want others to think well of you always. You perhaps do whatever you must do to achieve this, or you think much of yourself and little of others. You do not think of others and their needs. You do not consider them as worth your time, the standard of your intelligence, the standard of your wisdom, your greatness. You are better than everyone and anyone around you. I don't know what it is for you. Perhaps you should consider what sin you failed to confess before the Lord, what sin you are covering over, what sin you are hiding. I've said frequently that a life of faith is lived in community. It is in the context of the community that we're frequently exhorted to confess our sin to one another. 
The psalm is an illustration of that truth as David bears his soul before the community of believers. He does so without regard to pride and ultimately for the good of the community as he encourages them to also confess, to likewise confess. Faith is lived in community. Confession as a part of the life of faith ought to be done in community. Again, not confession to a professional priest, but rather confession to a brother or sister in Christ who can probably relate to you and can definitely pray for you. And perhaps you don't blast all your dirty deeds to the whole congregation on a Sunday morning, but you should have someone in the family of God who you can go to and you can bear your soul to so they can help bear your burden. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, this text doesn't use the word confess, but the idea is present. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Or James says very simply in James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Back to the text, we're looking at a parable of David, a story from his own life, which he confessed before the congregation intended to teach truth. The truth is that confession is good for confession to the Lord leads to the Lord's forgiveness, which is a blessing. Now, at least our final point, we saw the blessedness of the forgiveness of the Lord. We saw the parable of forgiveness of the Lord. And finally, we see the promise of the forgiveness of the Lord. Verses six through eleven. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed by bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. He says, therefore, this is the conclusion of the matter. This is what you need to understand as we consider the forgiveness of the Lord. Remember in the beginning the blessedness of those who receive his forgiveness. Well, here it is. These are evidences of the favor of God upon those who receive his forgiveness. And remember, there's a process for receiving forgiveness, right? You sinned and therefore you confess. You confess and therefore the Lord forgives. But then what? Well, then there is deliverance. Look again at verses 6 and 7. He says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Even though we sin, even though we may endure the natural consequences of that sin, the believer will never suffer the eternal consequences. Those have been paid for. But there may be natural consequences, including the weight of guilt that we feel as a result. Even though we have sinned, God is still our God. He is still our deliverer. Thus, David exhorts the congregation. Remember, the life of faith is lived in community. David exhorts the congregation and any who hear, let all the godly offer prayer. Well, what prayer? In context, it's a prayer of confession. Let all who are godly offer prayer at a time when he may be found. David says, don't wait, don't drag your feet. When you come before the Lord, confess your sin. Let it come out in the open. Confess that the Lord may help you to forsake it. I like this quote. It says, there's a real sense of urgency in the psalmist's call to prayer. He says, God does not make himself readily available to those who 
Seek him only in times of extreme distress. The psalmist's exhortation is that a relationship of trust and reliance on God must be built in relative times of peace and security so that when the mighty waters come, when trouble comes, the one who has established a pattern of communicating with Yahweh will not be overcome, end quote. There's a sense of urgency in David's words here. Here again, the confidence, surely in a rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The turmoil, the trouble will ultimately not reach the one who confesses. God will preserve them in their faith. Even though they've sinned, God will not throw that in your face and he will not reject you in that time. You are a hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with deliverance. Even if you're caught in sin, which you fail to confess, the Lord is still with you. He will still deliver you. He will still uphold you. The Lord himself will preserve you. Again, we often hesitate. We flee from confessing our sin before the Lord, particularly if a sin that we've long endured. We fight against confessing that sin because we think it'll lead to our total destruction. We think that we'll be forsaken and left destitute. And the reality is that our sin may lead some to abandon us or may lead some to change their relationship with us, but the Lord will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. He will instead draw you near to him. He will keep you. He will guide you. That's our next point. Not only is there deliverance, but there's also guidance. We see that promise in verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed by bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I will instruct you and teach you. I will counsel you. Again, the Lord will not turn away those who come to him in humility and confess their sin. He will not turn them away, but will in fact embrace them and lead them in the way they should go. At those times when we're embracing sin, indulging sin, believer, we need the wisdom of the Lord. We need his guidance, but it won't come as we continue to cover our sin. It'll only come as we confess it. He says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed by bit or bridle, or else it will not stay near to you. God is not interested in being politically correct, right? (laughs) He says, don't be like a horse or a mule. Don't you be like a horse or a mule. I love that. But the reality is that the Lord loves you enough to place that bit and bridle on you in order to keep you near. He'd just rather not do it. He says, don't be like a dumb animal and persist in your sin. Don't miss that last part. He references the bit and bridle. And the bit and bridle in this context is the chastening hand of the Lord. That's done in order to make sure that the horse stays near. The Lord wants for us to stay near. Sin often drives away. But the Lord wants for us to stay near. He says, you should be seeking to stay near to me. And not, dr- not drifting away. Well, again, we have the promise of deliverance. We have the promise of guidance. We also have the promise of the benevolence of the Lord. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. This kind of brings us back full circle. Again, these promises are echoes of the blessedness of his forgiveness. The wicked will endure many sorrows. They will endure sorrows in life due to the fallen nature of the world. They will endure sorrows in life due to their own sin. In their case, they will have no forgiveness of the Lord as they will not seek it by confession. 
They will have no relief through his forgiveness. To the contrary, the one who trusts in the Lord, that is evidenced by their willingness to confess and seek his face, those who trust in the Lord will be surrounded by his steadfast love. That's his promise. God is good and he does good, especially to those who draw near to him in faith. That leads to the last promise. Those who are surrounded by the steadfast love of the Lord will not sit idly by with tight lips, but instead will abound in joy. We see in the final verse the promise of exuberance. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The righteous, the upright in heart, are contrasted with the earlier designation of those who are deceitful. The righteous, the upright in heart, confess their sin to the Lord and thus find his forgiveness. David affirms here that the forgiveness of the Lord ultimately leads us to be glad in the Lord, to rejoice, to shout for joy at its forgiveness. There are always going to be bad days. One of my pastors used to say frequently and simply, life is hard. Life is hard. It's hard for all people, believers and unbelievers. But as I mentioned last week, joy is available to the believer at any point in their lives, and it is available because joy has nothing to do with favorable circumstances. Joy is rather a product of our relationship with the Lord. Those who are surrounded by the steadfast love of the Lord can abound in joy no matter what may happen in life, even if they have to endure the consequence of their foolish sin. The promise of this psalm is that those who confess their sin will be forgiven because God is a forgiving God. And those who are forgiven will be blessed by God even to the degree that they abound in joy. R.C. Sproul once said, we need to do more than sing amazing grace. We need to be repeatedly amazed by grace. You are forgiven, beloved. How does God help you to abound in joy? You are forgiven. Remember that. Think on that truth. Your sins are remembered no more. God will never, ever count your sin against you. You have been delivered from your sin and its penalty. And even if you should fall to sin in the future, the Lord will still take you in. He still will not count your sin against you. In fact, as you continue to confess to him, he will take you in. He will hide you. He will deliver you. He will instruct you. He will surround you with steadfast love. He will lead you down the path of joy. This is joy of the Lord. His joy. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Sin promises a shadow of joy. It promises the happiness of momentary pleasure. It promises the satisfaction of desires fulfilled. And yet what it delivers is far from pleasurable. What it ultimately delivers is death. It is pain. It is distress. The Lord promises the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That is what is so amazing about grace. It's not just that we are forgiven. It is that we are forgiven and forever drawn close and held by the true and living God. It is that the true and living God promises to pour out an abundance of joy in your heart, in your life. The question is, do you believe this? And are you reflecting and meditating on this truth and being amazed by his grace frequently, daily? Our last song for this morning is a song of celebration. 
It sounds like an Easter song, but again, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday morning. The purpose of the song is to remind us of the joy of our Lord, the joy of his sacrifice for us, the joy of what he secured for us by his resurrection. Jesus has secured our forgiveness, our full redemption, our eternal life as a result of his resurrection from the dead. The morning has come and the morning continues because he lives. What will you do about your guilt? You have sinned against God directly by breaking his law and often have sinned against others. You can take as many steps as you want to work through forgiving yourself. You can offer as many apologies as you want to others, but you'll still feel the effect of guilt on your soul. And it'll eventually find its way to your body. No amount of forgiveness or of yourself or forgiveness of others will definitively deal with your guilt. But the word of God, the wisdom of God shows us a better way. Confess your sin to the Lord. He is the one whom you've ultimately offended. He is the one who offers total forgiveness and pursuing his forgiveness is ultimately the pathway to joy. Have you found his forgiveness and are you resting in it this morning? Well, if you're resting in his joy today, don't keep silent, but be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart, for the Lord your God has forgiven you. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word, which reminds us of your forgiveness reminds us of your grace and all of what your forgiveness affords us. Father, we are grateful for that truth. We rejoice in that truth today. We rejoice in your salvation, and I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters to meditate on that truth, the truth of your forgiveness, and to find in that truth joy and encouragement to continue to seek you, to continue to confess our sin before you, to continue to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. We pray this all in his blessed name. Amen.